This is a Scraps Studio production, and you are listening to Scraps Bioelectronic Medicines. A special series dedicated to informing, engaging, and educating experts and non-experts on medicines that quite literally get on your nerves. By that we mean medicines that will be prescribed by a doctor, implanted by a surgeon, or used during an outpatient visit, all designed to modulate the body's systems, functions, and operations. Bioelectronic medicine is experiencing a renaissance of growth and is developing therapies that target these nerves to help treat a variety of disorders. This series is designed to inform you of the power, promise, and potential of these revolutionary bioelectronic medicines. And this is Arun. And Jojo. And you're listening to Scraps. Okay, Arun, what do you have today? Well, today's an interesting one. Very interesting one. Like your kind of interesting or my kind of interesting? You know what? I find that offensive and complimentary at the same time. But I also find that weirdly exciting. It's because your kind of interesting is the geeky kind. It's the kind where you like to put a whole lot of information into a really small space and time. And my kind of interesting is generally more something that involves the ocean and sunscreen and mezcal and vacation. (laughs) What if, what if I told you that it is both are kind of interesting? One that would make you want to eat, yet would make you feel so scared about eating it. Scary food? Okay, I can only think of one example of scary food. I'm open to everything else, but this one just doesn't do it for me. What's that? Okay. It's very clear, very obvious. I say this all the time. You know I'm not a scientist. So the only real knowledge I have of what you guys do on a daily basis in all your little labs is when I go out to the bar and for dinner with my scientist friends. And so at one of the conferences, it was a neuro conference, (laughs) and we were at a sushi bar, and one of the guys I was with stands up and yells, I hope we don't die. Oh, my And it kind of freaked me out a little bit. And everyone's looking around perplexed. And we calmed him down. Of course, we had to use some sake to do it. But he said, Okay. And mind you, this is a neuroscience conference. He was reading this classic book in his first year of his PhD called ion channels of excitable membranes or something. Oh, yes, I remember that. Bertel Hill wrote that. And for patch clampers like me, it's a Bible. Okay, see see what I mean about your kind of interesting? Anyway, this fugu, or as the Japanese call it, or Japanese pufferfish, was on the menu. And they secrete a toxin that causes paralysis. And the only way to inactivate the toxin is to cook it properly. Oh, yes, that's true. Because the toxin that the toxin that the pufferfish produces is a strong blocker of sodium channels, one that can seize nerve action potential. Yeah. Okay. exactly that. However you want to explain it. He called it something. It's tetra. I don't tetrahydrocortolimpazine. I don't know. Tetrodotoxin. Okay. All right. That's it. Yes. So he's completely paranoid and said ever since he read that, that he's had nightmares of dying in a Japanese restaurant from puffer fish. 
<laughs> death by pufferfish. That's a bit crazy. Yes, fugu is a delicacy, and Japanese consume ten thousand tons of fugu every year. And the Japanese, of all people, know how to cook that well. But you know, he's right. The knowledge of the toxin was from some accidents that occurred by people eating improperly cooked fugu and ending up dead. And do you know what? Tetrodotoxin is more deadly than cyanide. It is said. Okay, okay, okay. Wait, stop. Enough of this. Your food is gonna kill you, Gore. I feel like I'm just stepping out of a Tarantino movie. Why are we even discussing this, Arun? I mean, this I'm putting this squarely on your shoulders as being your fault that we're down this rabbit hole. <laughs> My fault? Well, yes, it wouldn't have been if you hadn't insulted me by saying that I cram a lot of information in a tiny space in my head. And I didn't know if I should feel proud of you saying a lot of information or my brain being referred to as the tiny space. Okay, insults aside, which I never intended, but you seem to have taken anyway, where were we? Before we went down this Japanese delicacy rabbit hole, tell me where we were going. Well, you were the one who started it, remember? When I said I have something very interesting. You started it. Go on. <laughs> okay, I want to tell you about this creature, this really small creature, deep inside the ocean. Something that looks so innocuous, but is extremely deadly. Okay, deadly and small, deep in the ocean. So we know it's not a whale or a shark, right? No, it's not. Okay, so what is it? It's so small that it almost. The size of an adult pinky. Well, maybe a small human's pinky, roughly four centimeters long, and weighs just twenty-five grams in weight. All right. So Nemo, Dory. Am I getting warmer? I said deadly, Jojo. Okay, okay, okay. So what? Wait, four centimeters long and twenty-five grams. You know, this stupid metric system. That's, let's just put it this way: it's the weight. Of a helping full of peanuts. So go on, tell me what you're on about. What if I were to tell you that this small creature creates something that is so different from anything that we know of, and it sometimes even seems implausible? Okay, you're dodging the question, and now I think you're just making this up. I can see it in your eyes when you're talking about this, and I know the standard engineering answer is that this violates the laws of physics. It's not possible. Well, Jojo, you know that I'm not an engineer, for God's sake. And but at the same time, what if I were to tell you that we can explain this from a physics perspective? Okay, really? Please do tell. Well, for this, let's leave the water in the deep dark ocean and move to a clear stream or a river that has flowing water at a good speed, no turbulence, no slope, just good speed. That's constant, time after time, after time, and you can possibly think of the same principle happening in pipes too. This type of flow, I think most of the students will know it as laminar flow, is maintained, and the speed is almost constant. It never changes. Everything is fine until a particular speed, but once you slowly crank up the speed of the stream or the water in the pipe. And let the speed settle. Something happens when the speed of the water exceeds a certain limit. The pressure in that confined space drops, 
And when this happens, small bubbles are formed. So next time I go camping, I'll keep a close eye out for this one because I love the tiny bubbles. And in fact, I think you should cue the Don Ho here. wondered where those tiny little bubbles in the stream come from. I always assumed it was just water hitting obstacles. But now you're telling me that when the water reaches a certain speed and the pressure drops, that's where the bubbles come from. Oh yes. These tiny bubbles are formed when the pressure goes down and when it builds back up with a change in direction or an obstruction or a slope, the bubbles burst. It almost feels like the bubbles exist in a fine balance, you know? The balance created by the fast-moving water and the water behind it that's not moving as fast creates the small pockets of air and this balance is just so fascinating. So it's pretty much a lot like life, right? So what's what's the relationship between this and the deep dark ocean and this thing that weighs the same as a cup of peanuts and measures the size of my pinky? Well, before we go there, let me tell you something else. If you're thinking of such laminar flow in pipes that feeds propeller blades in a hydroelectric power station or some other motor etc these small air bubbles when they burst can hold some crazy amount of energy for example as they flow what do you think happens to these bubbles well let me think about it so this bubble this tiny little bubble is constantly pushed and prodded by the surrounding water or if you're me then my mother So it must be very stressful for the poor little tiny bubble. You're not wrong. Remember, the bubble is formed when the pressure is low. So it doesn't really like the pressure going up. So assume the speed, if it's increasing, the poor bubble is being pushed in all directions. And as a result, the air temperature inside the bubble with increased pressure goes up. Each bubble and the air inside just gets hotter. And hotter. So are we talking like Florida hot or Death Valley hot? Well, not in the case of one bubble, but if you assume millions of bubbles that get pushed and prodded and prodded, pushed, pushed, prodded, pushed and 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 prodded. Okay, but Arun, I'm still really curious because you haven't gotten back to what this is lurking down in the deep dark ocean. I've heard about soft little tiny bubbles. Tell me, tell me, tell me. You can assume that the temperature goes up and this can cause damage to the propeller blades, etc. Shaving off chunks of paint from them. Well, coming to that small creature now. And you said it's not Nemo. Yes, it's not Nemo, but something that you see served up in a seafood restaurant. Lobsters. No. Flounder. Nope. Okay, what is it? Shrimp. (laughs) What? Yeah, this thing that I mentioned. It's a very deadly thing. And just to remind you, it is four centimeters long. Size of my pinky. Metric system, remember? And and weighs 25 grams in weight. Yes, yes, 25 grams. It's the same amount of peanuts I get in my little airplane pack when they don't feed me. What do you expect me to do with such a small quantity? Focus. Now, focus. 
All right, all right. This shrimp is fit to be a member of the NRA. National Rifle Association? Yep. <laughs> Surely you do not mean the National Rifle Association. Yep, I absolutely do. And it's called, wait for it, pistol shrimp. It does something remarkable. Pistol shrimp, despite being a small animal, it eats other shrimps. Ooh. Cannibal shrimp, no thank you. Okay, now I'm going to tell you a few other things that's going to blow your mind. What is that? And these interesting facts that you would not have expected from this honorary member of the NRA. The pistol shrimp has two claws. One is a big one, which is called as a snapping claw. The other one is a smaller claw. If God forbid, it uses its snapping claw. The missing limb regenerates into a smaller claw and the original smaller claw grows into a new snapping claw. Here is another interesting factoid as well, Jojo. The pistol shrimp burrows itself. It also has a partner with which it burrows, which is the goby fish. The two share a symbiotic relationship and it's super interesting. Pistol shrimp shares its burrow with the goby fish and provides it with food. And in exchange, the goby fish, which has, interestingly, much better eyesight, warns the pistol shrimp when danger approaches. The shrimp and the goby fish maintain contact through the shrimp's antennae, and the goby fish alerts the shrimp by its characteristic tail movements, and then both retreat into the safety of the burrow. And now let's come back to how the pistol shrimp does what it does. While Killing the other shrimp, it creates a sound that is very uncommon in water. Oh, how's that? Have you ever tried clapping your hands underwater? That's goddamn hard. The resistance is too much. Well, you're right. If that's what you think, tell me what the sound is. What is that? Well, that's the sound it makes. That seems fairly innocuous. Almost sounds like a finger snap. Well, of course you're going to say that, Jojo. But honestly, I'm going to tell you something else that's going to change your viewpoint. You know, the presence of pistol shrimp was actually identified during times of war. It is widely believed that during the World War II, submarines, specifically American submarines, would hide in the areas where pistol shrimp inhabited to escape the Japanese submarines. Really? That's strange. Why would they do that? Yeah, it seems really strange, right? But if you think about it a bit, it will make sense. Listen to this now. Ready? Well, that that sounds like a metronome to me. Yeah, so imagine if this was irregularly spaced in time and space, and if you were a submarine trying to track the enemy, and you heard this on the sonar. And now, are you tracking a submarine or a marine animal? Holy hell, that's incredible and mightily interesting, my friend. I told you so. Well, now I suppose you're going to tell me how it does it. But the way it does its kill is a thing that will excite any Hollywood director. It lays down under a rock or something that is big enough to hide it, keeps watching and watching and watching and watching. And this shrimp has claws, right? I mean, it's just sitting there watching. What else is it doing? I mean, has it got sitcom going or what? It's got to be a patient, (laughs) kind of little crustacean down there. Very much so. (laughs) It does have claw. In fact, one claw is bigger than the other. 
Why is that? I know you're going to tell me. Well, yes, I'm going to tell you. It keeps his eye on what's passing by. And then when it notices a tiny shrimp that seems like food, it does something. It moves its claw slowly, faces it towards the shrimp, and cocks its claw like a pistol. And then, bam! Wait, what is this? Is this a no, John Wayne the script? Fires a shot like a pistol firing a bullet. Wait a minute, it fires yes. a shot at what? It shoots at the it. shrimp? But I, uh, okay, hang on. So it's a shrimp well, shooting other the shrimp. Cocking of the claws, much like how a shooter will cock his or her pistol. This process of cocking and snapping its claws happens remarkably fast. Like how fast? Well, like 97 kilometers per hour. Kilometers? Kilometers. What is that in miles per Uh, hour, Americans. Really? Well, it's roughly 60 (laughs) miles an hour. And what do you think happens at that speed? And what happens then? Why is this such a big deal? Well, this super fast cocking and snapping that will get you a ticket on the Pennsylvania Turnpike Basically, it gets a speeding ticket. <laughs> what? What happens at 60 miles an hour? Cocking and snapping of the claw at 60 miles an hour creates tiny bubbles. And at the depth of ocean, this is not filled with air, but filled with vacuum. Yep, there is no air that deep in the ocean, right? I guess so. So this ultra-fast cocking and snapping makes these bubbles by a process called acoustic cavitation. Right, and that's because of the pressure change. Correct. The temperature at the point of the bubble bursting and shocking the prey, which in fact is another shrimp, can reach as high as the temperature of the sun. Wait, what? As hot as the sun? And give it to me in Fahrenheit or Celsius. I don't care. I give up. Well, the temperature can actually go up as much to around 4,800 degrees centigrade in the small bubble. Okay, so... Yeah, this process is not without any display either. You can imagine that this cocking and firing of the claw gun results in tiny bubbles, extremely tiny bubbles being formed and hurled towards its prey. And it creates this dazzling display of luminescence called a sonoluminescence. I've already learned something today. Thank you. Well, thank you. But this observation is over 20 years old and was published in Science in 2000. And the flashing bubbles was published in Nature in a follow-on paper back in 2001. That's amazing. Yeah, pretty remarkable, right? Okay, so we have this new sheriff in town and it is not Pistol Pete, but it's Pistol Shrimp. <laughs> yes, Alpheus Sederici. He sounds so Italian. It uses the sonocavitation to kill its prey, and the noise is pretty deafening. It must be Pistol Shrimp, my man. He could star in the next Western that I'm producing. Yeah, and it's hard to know the sex of the shrimp, because most shrimps are born male, but then undergo sex reversal to become a female. Female power, I like it. (laughs) <laughs> okay.
Okay, Rune, why are you telling me all of this about shrimp sex changes? I thought we were supposed to be talking about bioelectronic medicine, and now we're in marine biology, and I really can't figure out what you've done here. Well, there is smoke behind this fire, Jojo. But before we do that, before we tell them more, do you want to tell our audience what they should do? Oh yes, audience blackmail. This is it. Well, if you like what you're hearing, shrimp, Pistol Pete shrimp aside, you bloody well better subscribe to our newsletter. And if you use Spotify to listen to our podcast, we'd love it if you would leave us a star rating. Or if you use Apple Podcasts, leave us a review, won't you? Your review doesn't help you, but it helps others who want to try our podcast. So remember to give us your five stars on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And lastly, this episode, like most others, takes a shitload of effort over the weekend and throughout the nights to produce. So we're happy to put in our effort, but the cost beyond us needs to be covered. So if you'd go to the donate page on our website and send us money every month, we'd surely appreciate it. You can support us for as little as a cup of coffee or a pint of beer. I know which I choose. And I know you drink either one of those things in copious amounts. We want to thank our sponsors, Cortec and Certec Medical, for the kind donations to enable us to bring these episodes to you. All right, should we get back to how this is all relevant to bioelectronic medicine? Yeah, so what was the name of our pistol shrimp? Our Italian pistol shrimp? Mr. Alpheus Cederici. Remember, Alpheus creates his acoustic cavitation that stuns its prey using a snap of a fingers, like movement of the claw, that creates noise as high as 218 decibels. 218 decibels? Holy hell, that's incredible. Yeah, really, 218 decibels. Just to put it into context, an F-15 fighter plane projects... 140 decibels to the ground. So, 218 dB is higher than what an F-15 fighter jet would produce. So you can imagine the sound and the ruckus our pistol shrimp creates on the ocean floor. Despite being so small and measuring only 4 centimeters long and a size of an adult pinky. Imagine if you can do that to something in your body. To something that is so bad. And something that killed our dear friend, Saumya. Wait, when did this happen? Yeah, our dear friend Sao, as we called her, was a very genteel and the most kind-hearted person that I know of. Died because of this bad thing. She was a mother to a wonderful boy, just a year younger to my daughter and was a wonderful exponent of Indian classical music. In an interesting twist of fate, just to go with the topic that we were discussing earlier about acoustic cavitation, she was a pediatric audiologist. She met her husband, my dear friend, via the good old days of MSM Messenger in a chat room. She was in India and her husband was in the UK doing his higher studies and as destiny would have it their chats blossomed into an admiration for each other and a few years later they got married and as fate would have it she was diagnosed with a deadly cancer glioblastoma multiforme 
or GBM as most people would know it. She underwent two surgeries in 2019, chemo and radio after that, and was tumor-free by the summer of 2020. The last time we met her was at a family picnic where we celebrated her son's birthday in June 2020, just after the first wave of COVID lockdowns were lifted. And as luck would have it, the cancer was back with a vengeance and wonderful sow breathed her last in December 2020. And as her husband and my friend Jitu would say, Saumya brought music into his life, but she was lying there in a coffin, still and motionless. Yet her words, her eyes, her smile filled the room and continues to fill the ten-year-old boy's and the widowed husband's life. And that's when I heard of this company. I shared this with Imran Iba, who is my friend, and he shared something back with me that literally brought tears to my eyes. My brown brother and friend Imran Iba spoke in very, very secretive terms at the time, though. He said that there was this company which is started by a neurosurgeon in New York, and he was the seed investor in this company, targeting tumors with an ultrasound approach and it could potentially treat glioblastoma. While it was a bit late for my friend Sao, I can only imagine how big of a smile it will bring to her husband and son's face when they hear what could be possible for other people who suffer from glioblastoma. This one is for you, Jitu and Hishan. It's terribly sad. I'm sorry. We have welcomed Dr. Vijay Agarwal, the CEO of Alpheus Medical, to help us understand what is it that they are doing. So, welcome Vijay. I'm so sorry you you had to, you know, go through that. And you know, it's it's a it's a terrible thing um to to experience and you know, there are a few things in life that have no boundaries. It, you know, cancer doesn't see color. You know, cancer doesn't see socioeconomic status. It's, it doesn't see anything like that. Whether you're rich or co- or poor, black or white, it doesn't matter. And that's the you know, in a lot of ways, cancer is the biggest equalizer. It's the greatest equalizer. Uh, and I think it it shows something where you know you take something that's acutely terminal, like brain cancer. Uh, it can afflict someone who's 38. It can afflict someone who's 78 with the exact same outcome. You know, and how is it that we have this entity of brain cancer that has acute terminal? There is just no way to escape the inevitable fate of brain cancer. But how has there been no advances, meaningful advances in the field in 100 years? You know, how do we have a disease that is just so universally fatal, but we can't make any progress towards not only treating the symptoms and we've minimally made progress in that regard, seizures and headaches and things like that and weakness with steroids, but really treating the outcome. 
we've done virtually nothing for brain cancer over the last century. As we always do, we had to ask him how he got to found Alpheus. Yeah, no, thank you. So first of all, you know, what you guys are, are doing in the, in the podcast and the work you, that you guys are doing is absolutely phenomenal. Um, and I think it's it's really pioneering in, in this field. And it's incredibly important, I think, to have a forum to discuss these issues, because as you said, they just don't exist. So I'm humbled to be a part of it and, and extremely excited to, to follow you in terms of your progress uh, and your success. So very excited about that. Um, you know, in terms of my personal journey, you know, I've been involved in the field of brain cancer for a very long time. Um, and so I've been very interested in, you know, how do we... Uh, attack cancer? How do we attack brain cancer? How, you know, how do we do this? And so that's what I've devoted my life to. I've devoted my life over the last, uh, you know, decade to trying to find a way to battle brain cancer. Uh, and so I traveled all over the world. You know, I trained at Duke, which is the biggest brain tumor center in the world. And I tried to really understand ways to, um, you know, really improve the survival, really improve the quality of life of these patients. And what became clear in my travels is that there's just no way that currently exists to really extend survival, to really improve the quality of life significantly. And the, the uh, you know, the outcome is universal. And unfortunately, it's fatal. And so when I was looking at, you know, why that was the case, you know, why is it that these outcomes are fatal? You know, what is it about brain cancer that makes it so deadly? And really, uh, the reason for brain cancer being so deadly is it's just a very invasive disease. So it's a brain disease. It's not a localized cancer. One thing that we have learned from brain cancer is it just diffusely integrates its tentacles that go throughout the brain. And you can't just scoop out the tumor that you can see because it's all the tumor cells that you can't see that will cause recurrence and ultimately death of the patient, unfortunately. And so you have to find technologies that are intelligent. It's not just about, you know, how do you, you know, brute force go in and scoop these tumors out that people have been failing that for a hundred years. How do you find a truly intelligent technology? And that's where device meets the drug world. It really takes a combination to truly understand how to separate normal brain cells from brain cancer, number one, and then two, how do you cause those tumor, cell tumor cells to undergo cell death? You know, it's an identity problem. How do you identify them? And then how do you then activate them to undergo death? No drug has been able to do it in the history of mankind. No device has been able to do it. No person has ever been able to do it. It really takes a combination of all of these technologies and this innovation to be able to do it. And so I realized that it's that inability to differentiate drug, uh, brain from tumor. That's why we haven't been able to make progress against the disease. And that's where I got interested in this concept of sonodynamic therapy. It's perhaps one of the most intelligent, brilliant technologies that I've ever come across. The drug really selectively targets and accumulates in the brain cancer cells alone. It doesn't target the normal brain. It leaves the normal brain alone. It selects brain cancer. And so there you have one of the most intelligent drugs that exists. It does what man is not, mankind is not able to do. It's able to differentiate brain from cancer. And then what we did is we invented a device to be able to non-ablative, non-obstructive, non-injurious to the normal brain, 
selectively target the tumor cells which have taken up the drug to then undergo cell death. And so it, this technology is the culmination of years of trying to understand what elegant, sophisticated, you know, um, academic solution we could have to brain cancer. And it has to be to make it even more challenging is if that wasn't hard enough, you have to be able to target the entire brain or the entire side of the brain that has the tumor. So, you know, how do you with a drug alone or with device alone or with surgery alone or any other type of treatment, how are you able to replicate something like that? How do you differentiate brain from normal tumor cells that you can't even see that are dug deep into the normal brain? You know, Alan Friedman, who is perhaps the most famous brain tumor surgeon in, in the world, he said to me one time, you know, brain cancer is like putting sand onto the brain. And each of those sand particles represents a brain tumor cell. You can't see all of the tiny sand particles that are being dispersed throughout the brain as you infuse it and you drop sand onto it. So imagine the challenge of trying to treat a brain tumor that acts as it's as if it's those sand particles that are all throughout the brain and on the surface of the brain. So tell us a bit about glioblastoma. So, you know, brain cancer in, in general is a, just a, it's a, you know, it's a very difficult disease to, to treat. In general, you know, uh, glioblastoma, which is the most common form of, of brain cancer, um, the reason it's so difficult to target is and treat is it's wildly invasive it's a brain tumor that's incredibly, in, it's a tumor that's incredibly intelligent. So it's constantly mutating. So, you know, really is survival of the fittest. And that's the reason it's been so hard to treat over many years. It's perhaps the fittest cancer that we have. It evolves. It's a constantly evolving form of cancer. And so even when you have a patient has a brain cancer that's treated effectively with one treatment early on, it's difficult to treat that same cancer, that same brain cancer long-term with that same treatment because what happens is the brain tumor adapts to that treatment. It becomes resistant to that treatment. So with a tumor that's that intelligent, you really need to develop a solution that is even more intelligent than the tumor. And so brain cancer is a very difficult entity to treat. Because, number one, it's so wildly invasive and diffuse throughout that side of the brain. And number two, it's a constantly evolving, mutating disease. And so it makes, very, it, makes it very difficult to treat. Something that was effective against that tumor early on then would not become effective against that tumor later on in the disease progress. It makes it very, very difficult. And not just that, you can't target one area on that brain tumor, a lot of different immunotherapy technologies and different types of treatment modalities have looked to target the brain tumor in regards to one specific, you know, genetic aberration on that tumor. But you can't do that because before you know it, that genetic aberration will be mutated out. That brain cancer really adapts to the treatments in the tumor microenvironment. And so it makes, it's not like other solid body cancers uh, that can oftentimes be effectively treated with chemotherapy or radiation. This is a constantly mutating and evolving cancer, uh, and it's incredibly diffuse and invasive. And those characteristics have made it very, very difficult and have seen virtually 
minimal to no advances over the yeah, last Yeah, there are years. tumor therapies that target a selective mutation to the IDH1, and the drug Evocidenib targets the patients with tumors with IDH1 mutation, and IDH1 being isocitrate dehydrogenase, the enzyme that takes part in energy metabolism in tumor cells. But that's only a small subset of patients, though. Yep. No, I think you've hit the nail on on the head. You know, when you say that there are no treatments for, um, you know, these types of mutations, taking a step back, understanding the genetics of the disease completely changed the way we look at the disease. So how do we develop treatments when we don't even understand the disease? This used to be a disease where we look under the microscope and then we're able to classify the disease. But now we understand it's a genetic disease. So you know, we, we've changed the way that we classify the disease. IDH, you know, if you're a, a mutant, it imparts, uh, you know, different types of survival than if you're wild type. So if you have an IDH, if you have a genetic mutation in IDH, it actually turns out that you live longer. Why is that the case? Nobody knows why. MGMT, if you're methylated, it means if you have the genetic, uh, if that gene is methylated, then you have a better response to chemotherapy, which means that you live longer. You know, why is that the case? Nobody really understands why that's the case. So over the last few years, this new reclassification of glioblastoma is very recent, hot off the press type stuff. So how can we expect to treat a disease that we barely understand the pathophysiology of? Alpheus Medical is developing a combined drug device treatment where it's combining a sonosensitizer with a device that will act to target the tumor cells selectively with acoustic signals that are used by the pistol shrimp. But instead of the shrimp killing its prey, Alpheus aims to kill the tumor cells. The way that they will target the tumor cell is by using a proprietary sonosensitizer and device combination. So in a way, the procedure will do what nuclear imaging did to cardiology and other areas of medicine, pinpointing exactly where the pathology is and targeting the tumors with their approach. Is that fair to say, Vijay? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great question. You know, I think the biggest thing about combination products is education and awareness. Most people just aren't familiar with combination products. You know, you, you, know, you run into this problem when you want to understand the reimbursement field and the regulatory field and all the different fields that come along with running a company. And you have people who are masters of the drug field. You have people who are masters of the device field. But to be a master of the combination product field means that you have a mastery of both the drug and the device realms, which is an incredibly tall ask for anybody. So I think the biggest challenge for us has been really Number one, understanding the landscape of combination products. But then number two is really imparting that knowledge externally uh, in every field of the company, from engineering and IP to regulatory and reimbursement, is to really educate the field about the combination technologies. And it's tricky because there are some avenues where it's better to pursue the drug aspect, and there are some avenues where it's better to pursue the device aspect. So, you know, they're with a, a field that's really a burgeoning field with minimal precedent, you know, how do you understand which one of these pathways is superior? So how do you selectively target the tumor cells in the brain? 
Yeah, no, that's the biggest thing is you have a technology that's, you know, intelligent and, you know, how do you then exploit that? You know, how do you maximize the ability to pick out tumor cells? And, you know, the drug is really the selective component of this combination. So this drug, um, you know, a sonosensitizer, it selectively accumulates in brain cancer cells. So we use a drug called 5-ALA, and we have looked at all different versions of sonosensitizers and uh, photosensitizers and things like that. So we've looked at different drugs, um, but we use uh, 5-ALA, which is a drug that's approved here in the United States and has an extensive, you know, over a decade of approved use in Europe as well. So you drink this compound. It's been safe. It's FDA approved at that dose. It's FDA approved by that route of administration. It's been used for over a decade in Europe. Uh, no changes, you know, very safe profile. And then over about six to eight hours, this drug selectively accumulates within brain cancer. And so the drug over time will do the hard part of selecting the tumor from the normal brain. And then it's the opposite problem with the device. You don't want to be selective with the device. We have a low intensity ultrasound that doesn't injure the normal brain. So then what happens is you have this portable sort of repeatable treatment that then exposes the whole hemisphere. So the whole side of the brain or the whole brain towards this very safe ultrasonic signal. And ultrasounds have been used in medicine for a very long time. And we use ultrasound in brain surgery routinely. Almost every case will bring the ultrasound to make sure there's no residual nodule of tumor. We have 3D ultrasound that integrates into our navigation in the OR extremely safe profile uh, and so we take that same safety profile and we expose that ultrasound to the whole brain or the whole side of the brain the whole hemisphere and that selectively targets the brain cancer cells that have taken up the sonosensitizer the other brain cancer cells that have not taken up the drug are unchanged so you're developing a sonodynamic therapy that is highly technology and engineering focused and a product out of that how did the technology component come about? Vijay, how did you assemble the team? Walk us through those brainwave movements. Yeah, that's a really good question, Aaron. You know, the thing is, to run a successful company, I think you have to surround yourself with people smarter than you. And so, you know, you can't do everything. Uh, and the goal is to, to find people who are experts in those niche areas. And that's a, that's a tall order. That's a difficult ask. But it's through trial and error. And I firmly believe that there's a, a place in innovation and companies for talent. So I'll not only hire someone who I'm looking for. So for instance, if I need a vice president of clinical operations, if I need somebody to run the clinical trials, and I run into somebody who is a talent, who really is a huge talent, We'll find a way to use that person in the company to try to bring out the best in that person. So a lot of people will go out and target search. Oh, we need this. We need that. And you have to do that as a company. You have to find engineering and regulatory reimbursement, IP, all these things. But we'll often take people who are just talented. I firmly believe there's a position in any company for people who have talent and motivation. And we'll sometimes build sort of a job description around that person. And so you, you really have to find people, number one, who, who have that uh, ability and that, that talent and that experience, 
But I find the number one thing that can make up for anything is motivation. You have to understand what makes people tick. You have to understand what excites people because you're not going to convince somebody to spend sort of all hours, nights and weekends during tough times doing the work unless they see meaning in the work. We work in a field that I think uh, lends itself to, to inspiration, you know, brain cancer people. Everybody knows somebody who's been touched by cancer. Everybody knows, uh, you know, what kind of impact that has. So we don't have to work very hard to find people who have been touched by cancer. But to take that motivation to the next level, they really have to buy into the mission of the company. What you're doing is good for the world. You can't lead through intimidation. You can't lead through threats. You can't lead that way. The inspiration for people has to come from inside. It has to be internal. And so that's the combination. I would much rather take somebody who has minimal experience, but I think is very talented and extremely motivated. Companies are built on by, you know, six, by amazing teams with good ideas versus amazing ideas and good teams. Take good teams and amazing teams can really uh, change the world. And you just raised a $16 million Series C financing with your seed investors. Action Potential Venture Capital, and at the same time, you welcome some of the biggest names in investment, like Orbimed and SV Health Investors. So, how did you go about pitching your idea? How did the journey and the evolution of the pitch happen, Vijay? Yeah, no, it's a great question. I wish somebody had had asked this question when we were raising the money. You know, how do you go about this? You know, that's what a forum like this is so brilliant to do. Uh, it's going to help so many people in this process. And, you know, for us, when we embarked on this journey, we uh, understood that we would have to have uh, people in our, you know, in our allies, in our army, we needed to have people who had experience. You know, big ideas require big teams. And we weren't trying for a double or or, or triple, you know, so I, you know, we were going for the swinging for the fences. And so we were really looking for to make a huge impact. And you have to have a, a, a team that's able to do that. For entrepreneurs at that stage, you know, everyone's going to do their homework. Everyone's going to be smart. You have to have a vision and you have to stick to that vision. You know, stick to your guns. People will try to change what you want to do and you have to understand if that makes sense to do. But I would encourage you to really do your homework and stick to your guns. We were the first, you know, Orbimed is the, the biggest life science uh, investor uh, in the country by far. Um, and they, uh, we are the first brain cancer investment that they've ever done. They've been looking for a while and we feel sort of privileged to be in that space. And it really was about them buying into our same vision. So you can't, you can only do so much. Timing will play a certain role. They were, you know, looking to do, make an investment in that space. They were interested in what we're doing. You can't fight timing. You can't you know, plan for that. But what we had is we had a plan that was diligently laid out, and we had a lot of conviction and experience. So we had not only the next six months, the next year, the next five years. We had the next 10, 15, 20 years planned out. And is it going to happen that way? Definitely not. Things are going to change. But to show people that you've thought about it 
and to show people how you would go about implementing it. People understand that this is a dynamic process, that you're going to do the work um, to sort of adjust. You, know, you have to roll with the punches in this world of innovation. You have to have a good idea. You have to have the science to back it up. And you have to have a plan. So they have to see what mark you're going to make and how they're going to make a return on their investment. The best advice I could give to young entrepreneurs that are looking for money is if you can align your goals with the goals of the investment group and the institutional funding that you're going after, you win. It doesn't matter what their motives are. All that matters is what they want to accomplish. And if that aligns with what you want to accomplish, you're going to see success. Another question that we had for VJ was one that spawned the idea in our head as we were formulating episodes for the series. If you listen to our trailer on episode one, we strongly believe that the field is moving towards energy as medicine in contrast to everyone exploring electricity as medicine. VJ, how did you go about your investors? Do you want to say anything about them, especially since both of us have common friends in Imran Eba? When you're looking at this process of innovation and institutional investing and, you know, these sorts of things, you, you are interviewing for them, but they're also interviewing for you. And so I would encourage you to look at as if you, it's dating, you know, it's never one-sided is, is it a good match? And for there perhaps is no better match for us than APVC. APVC is an incredibly sophisticated, smart, investor. And I've been humbled by the interactions with APVC, not only um, during the diligence rounds with APVC, but also in terms of their help in developing the company and the technology. And I think going with the APVC early was perhaps one of the biggest uh, tenets of our success to go with a group that understands the use of energy for medicine, that understands that some of the old paradigms that we've used for the last hundred years are the reason we've failed in so many different types of cancer. Uh, having a group that understands ultrasound just in general, not having to explain the basics of ultrasound, which we're happy to do, but for them to understand ultrasound, they then see the benefits of ultrasound and medicine have been um, uh, enormous for us. And I would say that a big part of our success has been working with APVC and working with a group that truly understands ultrasound technology and the impact that energy can have in medicine. That's fantastic. So where does Alpheus go from here in the next 12 to 18 months? Yeah. Now we've spent a lot of time, you know, you have to, uh, it's a collaborative environment, but early on the value of a company is in their intellectual property. So we spent, you know, years and years and years uh, developing IP, publishing IP, granted, filed U.S. international. We spent a lot of time and a lot of money on intellectual property. That has to be, that's the value of any company early on. And that's the value that institutional investors will see, that your intellectual property. <clears throat> so we wanted to prove our technology. So what we did with a lot of our early funding is we embarked on one of the earliest large animal studies for sonodynamic therapy that's ever been done. So canines, you know, dogs with naturally uh, occurring brain cancer are virtually identical to human brain cancer. The invasiveness, the, all those characteristics, the genetic heterogeneity, the things we talked about in humans, identical to dogs, same genetic aberration, same tumor microenvironment. 
We were luckily enrolled in the longest, one of the longest standing naturally occurring brain cancer trials in canines in history. It's been around for about 15 years, multi-millions from the NIH, and we embarked on treating these dogs with brain cancer. And we have seen some of the longest survival in canine brain cancer in history with this trial. And so we really want, took initially from our concept, building the device, mapping out the reimbursement regulatory pathways, filing many, many years of intellectual property, you know, looking at the mechanism of action, basic science studies. Then we had to, you know, proof is in the pudding. We had to treat a large animal with brain cancer and prove that it's working. And that's what we've been uh, working very hard at over the past few months. And we've been uh, fortunate and, and very excited about our results in this large animal trial. Yeah. So does it mean that we will see both a veterinary application and a human application? I mean, recently when I took my daughter to the Louvre, there was only one animal that was there in many portraits. And guess what? It was always the dog. You know, it was such a you know golden opportunity to treat these canines. You know, we really feel privileged to do it. And so that really fits into our preclinical program um, uh, of, of, you know, we, we didn't have an intention of joining into the veterinary market, but we've had such success. You know, we have reached out from dogs from all over the world now flying in, you know, and, and um, to see us and get treated. And so, you know, we, we have an opportunity there, but our goal as a company was always to show promise for the technology for human patients. Uh, it was just an added benefit that we are now seeing an extremely long survival and progression-free survival in, in canines with brain cancer. And so there are opportunities there, but our ultimate goal with that study was always to show the promise for human use. We fortunately have done uh, so well in this large animal trial. So we're continuing our canine trial. Um, you know, perhaps is no better a replicate for human brain cancer than there is in canines. And so it's very important for us to have these animals live out and, and, and continue gathering their overall survival. And they're living much longer than anybody had expected. Um, and so the trial, uh, we're going to continue the trial and we're going to increase the number of enrollees in the trial. And then when we finish up with this canine trial, we'll look to then uh, replicate that success in our human clinical trials, you know, later on this year. And so our hope is then, um, you know, to take this, it's the same device, it's the same application. There's no changes in the way that we do it uh, in the dog study as we would do it in the human study. So in essence, it's a way to, to use the term practice, but to practice the exact same way and to see what the outcomes would be in humans, but in a, the canine study. So we're going to continue our canine study. You know, IP is always a, a very important number one topic for us. So we're going to continue protecting the invention and, you know, increasing the bar for other people to sort of enter the field, making sure we protect the device, the secret sauce. Um, and then we just continue wanting to see animals survive longer and we want to see humans survive longer. So I think uh, this year we're, we're going to see our, our vision and our goal of uh, seeing our, our first human patient treatment. Thanks Vijay. That was super insightful and an amazing journey for you and your company, Alpheus. And this one was pretty personal for me too, having lost a good friend to glioblastoma. Thanks for joining us. It's been an honor. The work you're doing is, uh, it's very humbling to be a part of. And we couldn't be happy. This is one of the, the only sort of public forums that we've been in. And we couldn't pass the opportunity up to work with you and, and to work with the, the podcast here. What you're doing is, 
is absolutely amazing, and we are extremely humbled to be a part of it. From Pistol Pete, the killer shrimp, to acoustic assaults under the sea, Alpheus Medical has found a way to turn these killer tendencies to an actual foe, glioblastoma, and to many other solid-state tumors in the future. As for me, I say we go Johnny Cash on this one and let Alpheus take their guns to town. You've been listening to Scraps by Electronic Medicines. The recordings were performed at Caprino Studios in the UK and Slightly Red Studio in San Francisco. Arun Sridhar wrote the script and Jojo Platt edited the script. Swaminathan Tiringana Samantham was our sound engineer and we want to leave you with the sound of Saumya. This is a recording that her husband and my dear friend Jitu provided for the podcast episode. Thank you.